0: There's a book called The Golden Key by George MacDonald. And um, the book came out in 1867. And this is the beginning of the book. There was a boy who used to sit in the twilight and listen to his great aunt's stories. She told him that if he could reach the place where the end of the rainbow stands, he would find there a golden key. And what is the key for, the boy would ask. What is the key of? What will it open? That nobody knows, his aunt would reply. They have to find out. I suppose being gold, the boy once said thoughtfully, That I could get a good deal of money for it if I sold it. Better never find it than sell it, returned his aunt. Very important, right? Better never to find it than sell it, returned his aunt. It said that the teachings are so precious we could never put a price on them. Better never find the teachings than sell them. Because we find, we search, we look for peace. (laughs) It's like um, something deeper than life and death. There's a great chant that I learned when I first started practicing. Uh, It means all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. It's a beautiful chant. Dhani Sankara. Upatua ya domino. Upakitua niruchanti, de desam upasumo suko. And it's such a beautiful quality, yeah, that haunting depth of understanding, peace. My mom died when I was young, very young, and um, but she was sick for a long time. So I didn't know her when she was well, really. <clears throat> and uh, uh, it was just a, a subject that wasn't discussed on top of everything else. Um, and... there was a wake but I didn't know what a wake was I didn't know what was going to happen and when we went in um, my sisters and dad and were in this other room and I just kind of wandered into this other room that no one was in and that my mom's casket was there and it was open um, and it was such a shock and uh, I was very inquisitive so I went up to the edge horrified because you know they had all this makeup on her and she had been so sick for so long it was very upsetting to me how she looked and then uh, I touched her which uh, is probably one of the reasons I'm sitting up here because it was like a uh, it was such a um, powerful moment. It was just like they say in the text, you know, it's like, it was, um... I knew it would happen to me. I knew it would happen to everyone who lived. It was like, um... And it was like such a shock. Um... Because it was, her body was so cold. That was, you know, it was that coldness of her body... Um, and I knew then I knew that like I would be different from everyone that I knew my friends and family because my sister's my older sister didn't even notice it and my middle sister I don't know what happened but um, but I'm not saying that <laughs> that I uh, even remotely accepted it. I'm not saying that, I'm just saying it had this impact where I I just was, um, the impact just made it the most important thing for me to find something deeper than life and, and death that's what I say, it had that impact that that was the only important thing and the most important thing. Uh, and like I said, I don't, (laughs) I wouldn't even say I remotely accepted it. Um, and her grave is in this beautiful place outside of Boston and a most beautiful, beautiful graveyard. And, um, it's a very long story that I could tell some other time, kind of hilarious, but no one in my family ever visited it, Uh, which is interesting. So, sometimes I go when I'm in Massachusetts, uh, and I hadn't been for a while, and I went this year uh, after teaching in Ottawa, Uh, and the trees were all in their majestic colors because it was autumn. And, For the first time in my life, um, I was able to sit down there. You know, for me, it was always sort of drive in, run up there, (laughs) say hi, thanks for the big impact, (laughs) you know, thanks. No, it's more than that, but really, I just would not hang out there. And this year, what I noticed was I sat down, and then I got up, and I wandered around. And then I went over, and I sat down... (laughs) And I just really appreciated the restlessness. Like I'd never stayed along to... I never stayed long enough to notice how hard it was for me. So you notice, like, if you stay in the hall long enough, you might notice that something might be hard for you, right? Like, it's like I I trusted the pace for myself. I never forced it, but I like to visit, you know, every couple of years... Um, and what was amazing was that when I wandered, I found this grave of this kid I knew in elementary school. And I knew her mom had died of cancer young. And here it all was there. She, was, she had died recently, and it was so moving. You know, I haven't seen her since sixth grade. But I felt like she was right there. And that somehow seeing that, seeing that kind of lineage, I went back and I really felt for the first time I could talk to my mom a bit. Very wonderful. And I'm not saying I'm finished with this process, but it was, um, I think for us sometimes it's really nice to see the shifts in whatever whatever we're working on. Um, In Honolulu, if you fly internationally... There is a window display of um, there is a window display of a huge nautilus, and it's you know it's cut so that you can see into it, and. I've always liked going to see it, but I hardly ever get to go. But if you if I go to Burma, I get to go there. And this year I went and looked in there. And you can see the beginning, the very center of it. The, the spaces are very tiny as this being journeys through time, right? It's a little snail that's... And there's little teeny spaces. And then it goes around again, and the spaces are getting bigger. And then it goes around again, right? And the spaces are getting bigger and bigger. And... That's the great part of being on the journey. On this journey. Because the whole idea is that you might feel like you're just going around the same stuff, right? You know, and you're and you're saying, I'm still dealing with this. Well, I still honestly I still haven't totally accepted that my mom died then. But I was really young, you know, and it's been the main teaching. But wow. You know, look at that space that happened. Yeah, and that, that's so important for all of us. That space that we start to see that it actually is happening. There's a, a wonderful Zen teacher in Honolulu named Aiken Roshi that died a, a while ago just fairly recently in my mind. And, um, you know, he was older than a lot of us who started teaching pretty young. I mean, I have these memories when I started teaching that people would come up to me and say, you look too young to be teaching. That doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) Aiken Roshi was way older than us, you know. And uh, when he was in his nineties, I'd visit him. And um, you know, when you're—I don't know what—maybe I was fifty or something. But you know, ninety—that seems pretty far away, right? Right now, nineties looking closer. You know, it's—you know—it's like whoa, right around the corner. But then it—it it still seems far away. And I said. Roshi, how's it, how is it, you know, it looks kind of (laughs) hard, you know, he was physically hard, and, and he said, the view is breathtaking. All that space, right? Mahasi Sayadaw um, said once I heard him say once uh, that full enlightenment is no more desire for existence and no more desire for non-existence see, so sometimes we worry about, well, am I going to come back or not, you know, we're like Bodhisattva, and, you know, Arahant, all this stuff, but you know, that's such a beautiful description of freedom. No more desire for existence. No more desire for non-existence. It's really not taking a stand. Pretty free of views and opinions, I'd say. This is um, from Ulf Maribold, from the Federal Republic of Germany. He was an astronaut. And this is what he said after he came back from space. For the first time in my life I saw the horizon as a curved line. It was accentuated by a thin seam of dark blue light, our atmosphere. Obviously, this was not the ocean of air that I had been told. It was so many times in my life. I was terrified by its fragile appearance. I think those descriptions often of astronauts coming back to our planet, you know, it's like that sense of um, knowing that our body is the earth, part of the earth and the earth is our home uh, and and, um, and yet to get to know it you know is, is very similar to this experience he's describing all of a sudden we might go oh <laughs> you know we might bring our attention to our hands and there's the concept hands but then there's the reality of it, really. There's the words. But then what's the... what's the present time? Reality, the truth. And it's so different. And sometimes that's exhilarating. And sometimes it's terrifying. But usually liberating. This is from Alakai be enough from USSR at the time the earth was small light blue and so touchingly alone our home that must be defended like a holy relic the earth was absolutely round I believe I never knew what the word round meant until I saw earth from space so simple yeah but just you think of the word round, um, and this is what I've often noticed. If you read any of these vignettes from the astronauts, I mean, one of my favorites—I don't have it written down—is <laughs> I don't know, remember his name? But um, you know, he was—he was one of the first that went outside the capsule, and you know, he had that little umbilical cord out, and he was out there, and you could hear it. You could hear his voice, you know, talking to the guy inside. And it was just this like, you know, you could tell he was just like, and the guy goes, what's what? And he's like, wow, that's what I call dark. (laughs) (laughs) And you could just feel it, like how dark it was, you know, it's just like, you know, the whole, the word brings up a whole new feeling, right? And. It's like, but we could kind of wander out there in the woods and not find our way very well, and it could be dark, and it, it would have that, often that same feeling. It's like suddenly it's like, oh, it's dark. That's what the word <laughs> means, you know. And clearly, it's like, at the least, have we gotten to know the word bored? I hope so. If you haven't gotten to know the word bored this retreat, wow, what have you been doing? You know, you can feel like you're going to die of boredom sometimes, you know. Oh, it's time for some slow walking, right? Oh boy, maybe we could go somewhere different. How far down the beach can you go? And even then, it's like oh, left there. Ah! You know, it's that's you're meant to go through that. You know, you drive through it. It's I love the example of like if you're on a highway and you're going along, and you see that sign like a town. You know, okay. You know what is it? Okay, so you see you're driving along the highway and you see a sign for Nanaimo. You know. And this is like you're driving along the highway and you see the sign for boredom and then you see the exit, right? Do you take the exit or do you drive through, right? And how many times do you go up against that? And you can always drive off, right? That's the, And that's the idea of an anchor even. You know, <laughs> rest area. <laughs> 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 Gasoline, right? You know, refreshment. You know, it's like... Rest, but healthy rest. In this case, you're developing an anchor so that you can take a break so that the rest builds energy. And so energy is courage, and courage means that we might drive a little bit through that town. This doesn't mean like the next time it comes up we might not have the energy and we might have to go off again. That's what we hate. We hate that impermanence. We hate that we could do it once and we had the courage once and that the next time we can't. We take it so personally. It's not personal. It's energy. And then if you start understanding the relationship between rest and courage and pure exploration rest, courage, pure exploration when you start to get that it's not personal more, not completely of course uh, we'd be fully enlightened, but if you start to get that relationship, it gets. you get less reactive to that process less reactive, more energy You know how we take these um, little breaks say fantasy um, and Maybe it's like we're planning how to redecorate our house. It's like whatever it is, it's something you usually like to do. You know, it might be that you're planning a marathon if you like to run or, you know, however we are, you might be writing a poem or something. But when you find yourself doing that, at least notice it. At least notice that that means that usually the energy was building. It's just like a balloon that's getting filled with air. And it gets uncomfortable. And rather than be a little uncomfortable and know that we can use that, why is it getting uncomfortable? Well, because it's gonna, we're going to go into unknown territory because the next moment is always new. The next moment is unknown. So we're getting enough energy to kind of like maybe be able to like not be caught in thoughts about the past or future. We've we've connected, sustained the intention, non-conceptually. That that immediacy of knowing what's happening versus thinking about it. We might have done it for a while. The energy builds, and man, we find ourselves redecorating the house, right? And it's like, wow, how did that happen? Well. What that did was it lets a little air out of the balloon. And sometimes, you know, when you're learning, it's like all of a sudden you might have had all this energy and suddenly you're asleep. Like that's how fast the energy can go. It's amazing. Or, you know, you've thought enough so that you get tired. You know, it's it's hard. And I'm not saying to judge that. I'm just saying to notice it. it's always just starting to get that you know it actually takes some protection to explore it's like why aren't we asking to you to go to the co-op and somewhere wherever it is on this island and you know do walking meditation it's not protected It, you know, if you think you're getting easily distracted here, <laughs> you know that it's much more easy to get distracted. So the idea is to see, ah, oh, and it always come down to, can I just take the next step, not 10 million more? You know, when we're able to do that, when we can just be timeless, when you can just take the next step, the next breath, the next be with the next thought, it's light. And when it's like, whoa, seven more hours today, it gets so heavy, yeah. It's called stress. (laughs) The more caught in time, it's the more stressful. The less caught in time, it's the least stressful. So say we were going to bring our attention to the movement of the breath at the belly. And say our attention was with sound and the attention was more open. We describe that as like a more macroscopic lens. And for some people, that's more of a homeland. That's like where the awareness feels more at home. But to to stay rigid with that being the only way we perceive reality means that we're not letting ourselves get trained in different ways of perceiving reality. Um, So, say we bring our attention to the surface of the body, space around the body, not deep inside. You know, that's a different lens, right? It's like the medium between macro and micro. And then say... (laughs) The attention actually can be with the breath like the breath is breathing itself. It's like, we call that like a full immersion. You know, when we talk about like that deep inside, it's like... And it doesn't matter if the attention is out there, wide, looking, observing, witnessing, watching. That's great practice. And sometimes we might be more on the surface of the body. We're not that far, but we're not deep in. That microscopic attention is that feeling of being deep inside. And so that with that microscopic attention, say the attention was right inside the pinky, I ask you to bring your attention to the inside of the pinky. Most of us will travel down with our eyes. Check it out. It's fascinating. We are so visual. And it takes a lot of practice for the attention to not, for you to not go, nope, don't do it that way rather than notice it. Notice how, your, notice how your attention works. It's fascinating. And I, I, I watched that for a long, long time until finally one day I felt my attention in here, and then I had this huge, crazy desire to, to not travel down with my eyes. And I was frustrated, and I had to stop. I had to stop for a long time even paying attention to it. And then slowly I was able to like um, not have the eyes connected, the eyesight connected with that experience. It was like the attention wasn't there. It wasn't connected up here. But freedom doesn't depend on that. I had many mindful moments before that it was it just gets it just it's a training and over time the more you learn all these different ways what happens is that mostly you don't you don't direct it it just kind of does itself now i would offer that when you're tired your your attention is pretty much doing what it wants right <laughs> But there's not that much mindfulness. So what, how, in a way where the practice ends up is sort of where everything, the attention is sort of doing itself, but with training. But you're not directing it as much. So when you're learning and exploring, sometimes it can be very uncomfortable and you'll feel these places where it's like, you know, when I was first trying to notice my breath and my belly, I had spent ten years at my nose... You know here, and to switch to here for an anchor, I couldn't do that right away. It took forever, and it wasn't like um, the 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 instruction is. Say I was trying to anchor here. If my attention went up here, I didn't go like that because the the instruction is to go where the attention has gone. You go where the attention is predominant, so when my attention went up here, that was what was predominant. Of course it was. I'd spent ten years cultivating it. so it was a gr- it was a gradual process where my attention of course it was going to sound to embody sensations. I'm not saying that, but as in terms of an anchor, it was just I'd notice my attention there, I'd noticed the sensations for a while. And then I just gently come back here. So whatever you've trained your mind, your attention to do so far, of course that's going to be the strength. And then, you know, you stretch a little bit every time you go on retreat, daily practice. And and the idea of the practice is that, again, it becomes more inclusive and more inclusive and more inclusive. So there's an ease with being mindful of hearing. There's an ease with being mindful of seeing. There's an ease with being mindful of tasting, you know, thinking, emotion. So you see, it's just a gradual, I started mostly with hearing. And once I learned that a bit, I could be with the breath a bit, and then I could be with body sensations a bit emotion, thought, you see, it's, 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 and it's not like it's, um, that linear as I'm describing it. Um, there's a, there's a translation that the Buddha was said to have said at the end of his life. And the translation is, um, strive on with diligence. And I always wondered what, if I asked a few of the Sayadaw's I liked in Burma, what they would say the translation would be. And the Sayadaw I described that I had such a deep connection with, um, of course he laughed, he was like, ha ha ha. Uh, And he said um, that the Buddha said, um, the fulfillment of remembrance. That's a very different translation. Strive on with diligence. You know, most of us hear that and we just get the gas pedal all the way down. And we don't even break, you know. We're just really good at pushing. Um, Fulfillment of remembrance is like remembering to be mindful every moment. the fulfillment of remembering to be here. So we might hear all kinds of things, but then again it's always good to remember that it's that simplicity sometimes when it you know, when you're practicing, at the least it's just remembering to be here. Remembering to be here. Remembering to be here. Remembering to be here. To be here. The fulfilment of remembrance. So I think sometimes we, we are inspired to do that. you know, this remembering to be here. But we hit these places where um, it gets scary. And I think that we'll think that awakening means annihilation. And the Buddha said it isn't annihilation, but sometimes we need encouragement to know that it's it's really the fulfillment of understanding. So it's the fulfillment of being here, but through that process of continuity of mindfulness, the insight happens, and it happens inevitably. So Jesse's talk about Anicca Duganata—that that appearance of insight from applying the attention with con- some continuity with mindfulness. Uh, it's, it's just, it's inevitable that insight will happen. But the continuity isn't that going up into the head and intellectually figuring something out and then saying, oh, I understand impermanence. It's more that letting the attention connect and sustain with that immediacy of knowing intuitively, non-conceptually. So I'd like to read another passage from um, The Golden Key. So this little boy goes on a journey. He finds the Golden Key, but he doesn't know what to do with it. And he eventually meets up with this uh, girl, Tangle, and a wise woman. And you know she sets them on their way, and uh, it's a long journey long 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 journey and she tells them whatever you do don't get separated but they do so she's on her own and he's on her own and he um, she gets to the old man of the earth and um, she spent some time there with him you know but she's stuck so the old man of the earth Stooped over the floor of the cave, raised a huge stone from it, and left it leaning. It disclosed a great hole that went plumb down. That is the way, he said. That's the next moment, by the way. The unknown. That is the way, he said. And she said, Tangle said, but there are no stairs and the old man of the earth said you must throw yourself in there is no other way so when boredom happens it's like if you throw yourself into it that's what we mean If aversion happens, you throw yourself in. If um, some sensations or a sound is happening, it's unpleasant. It's like you just see if you can be right with it as it's happening. Whatever it is. We're not saying you can do that all day. You might need to rest the attention without doing that for quite a while. It might be that you do it two seconds. It's like, it's just that Letting yourself let go of the thoughts about the past and the thoughts about the future. A thought about the past is a memory. A thought about your hand isn't the hand in the present moment. It's a memory. And it said the insight doesn't come through being aware of a memory. It could be that you're aware of thinking in the present moment, about something in the past, that's different. So if you're missing somebody, say I was missing my sister who died, it was really helpful for me, for me to see that I could be aware of missing her in the present moment. I didn't have to get rid of it or do something with it. In fact, once I understood that, it was like, oh, so helpful. You don't have to let anything go. You're just like with that missing and then it'll come and go by itself. And I think we get afraid, you know, when we we drop into a deeper kind of truth that it's going to last forever. But I can assure you that it, it doesn't last long enough. You know, it's like, well, that sense, what am I losing if I let go of control? It's like when we're with the breath or a sound or anything just for a few moments, what we're gonna see is that we want control. And that's so deep a conditioning. Don't worry about it. It's like we worry, what is gonna what am I gonna lose by jumping in? And all we lose is greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> that's what's so funny. A moment of just being here connected to the truth of things is just a moment where there's no greed, hatred, or delusion present. What we, you know, the word that we use for that in the West is ego. So we think we have to let go of the ego, but that's absurd. What we would call ego is greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's helpful to have a healthy, healthy way of being in the world with an ego. But you know, when we define our terms, I think the word ego just doesn't even make sense from that context. So you're not getting rid of anything. You're not getting rid of sound, sight, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, emotions to be liberated. So that fear of losing something, all we're doing is gaining peace. We're gaining a full understanding by letting go complete. Well, by being fully present, without greed, hatred, and delusion. Present, there's a moment of complete understanding that isn't conceptual because we're fully present. Another way one could say this is um, this is from Sri Nazar Maharaj from the book I Am That. Imagination based on memories is unreal. Imagination based on memory is unreal. The future is not entirely unreal because the unexpected and unpredictable is real. So, in other words, the unexpected is real, which means the next moment that being unknown. That exploration is what is true for us. That is the way. So hence, whatever metaphor one can use for that, it's like, that's why there's a beautiful metaphor, is that there's no stairs, because of course the stairs would be based on memory, right? It's just all metaphor, but the feeling tone is sort of like, you just just get here. (laughs) One step. It's great. I remember when um, IMS in Massachusetts started Insight Meditation Society. It's kind of large, all the state, and um, up on top of the front building they decided to put metta. So when you look, you, you know, you see pictures. There's a Uh, word metta up there and um, I used to always used to think they should put don't know mind (laughs) don't know mind it's just not knowing what the next moment is going to be is such a relief I can't even tell you except that you know you already know that or you wouldn't still be sitting in the room. The, the need to control is so tiring, and that, that understanding that we don't even have that control is so energizing. So we can't explore reality if it's through the filter of aversion and attachment. And it's very important to understand that we have a pretty deep wiring that pain isn't okay. Pretty deep wiring. So that, you know, look, when there, when you look at wanting desire or not wanting aversion, they're just two sides of a coin. They're just that attempt to control what we can't control. But it's, you know, it's just to remember... You know, look at how many fully enlightened beings are wandering around. Can you count them on your fingers? No. Do we want to be free? Yes. So just to get that sense that the Buddha called this swimming upstream. It's swimming upstream. And yet when we get a glimpse of the truth, it has such impact It has such impact that we're willing to put ourselves through this because we know there's no other way. I'm sure we've all tried it. (laughs) I certainly have. Mm. Let me see if I can find this. Okay. I moved to Hawaii in 1983 from Massachusetts, and when I um, was invited to the Big Island to teach a weekend, it was a few years after 83, but I remember when I was driving, um, I, I was being driven north from Kona, and I first saw the mountain Mauna Loa. It's the biggest mountain on the earth. And for me, it, it just had a huge impact. Like, I, I knew I, I felt home. You know those feelings sometimes where you, you, you're you somewhere and you know, oh, this is where I feel at home. And that's that's how I felt. I think it was maybe at least 20 more years or more that I, I moved there. And I've always seen that mountain as something... Um, beautiful, and inspiring, uh, incredible from a distance. It's just magical. Uh, and last year, I, oh, plus I've always wanted to go up there, but never had the opportunity. And you can drive up to, uh, I don't know if it's 10,000 feet, but hardly anybody does. Everyone goes up the other mountain, Mount Kea, Um, it's a better road and you can go all the way to the top and there's um, a visitor center where you can look through telescopes and this other road is quite obscure and not very windy anyway Um, so I have this visual image from really far away that has been very deeply inspiring for me and um so, you know, got out of the car. <laughs> and the impact of um, what it actually was, like not visually, was so disenchanting for me at first, I almost couldn't take it. Like the, it was such a um, mind-stopper. And it was really good, but it was at first very unpleasant because it all I could See, were these little black and red pebbles? And it, I could, you know, it was just every, it was just vast, the largest mountain in the world. And all there were were these little red and black pebbles. And I couldn't take it. And you no, know, really, I was like, no, <laughs> oh my beautiful mountain, you know. But it was, um I'm not sure I'm getting across what it felt like, but it. Uh, it's kind of like when you say you brought your attention to your tongue really not with food in your mouth but like you know how we like eating and we like the pleasure of eating certain things but if you you know and we, we depend totally on our tongue for taste but if you actually let go of the word tongue and you let go of the whole idea of eating and you just bring your attention to the sensations there it's the same thing Or seeing. If you just sat here for an hour and you just paid attention to seeing, it would be the same thing. And there are so many levels of this. It's like the um, part of the pasna practice is there's stages of disenchantment with reality. So that you start learning that you're getting caught, you're getting hooked to things um, that if you investigate them, uh, they're really disappearing particles. And you start to see that maybe we don't have to be so um, aversive or so attached when you look closely. And there are so many stories I could give of this. But basically, if you took even uh, a microscope from when I was in high school, never mind nowadays, I can't even imagine what they do. But if you actually looked at your hand under a microscope, what would you see? You wouldn't see something solid. That's all we're saying. You know, it's like... I mean, I think about how much we look at our face, right? And that's me. But wow, we're missing a whole bunch, like the bloodstream, or, you know, like the bones, or, you know, finding all the places where there's fat, or pus, or, you know, it's not to um, dwell on that necessarily, but what we take to be you... Or me or I, and you start even remotely investigating it. It's just not what we think it is. The goal of that is to be free, the goal of it is to be peaceful. <laughs> hmm. One of my first long retreats was in England in 1979. And it was June. I had worked for a year as a cook at a meditation center. Uh, And I had this idea that June in England was going to be kind of warm and nice. But it wasn't hot. So I didn't come prepared for the weather at all. And then I have a lot of allergies. And there were rugs in the Buildings that were all kind of wet and mildewy and moldy, and I was so allergic, I can't even tell you. And this was a big deal that I was at this place. Um, so I started trying to sit outside, um, which didn't work. So then I found this abandoned building, it was freezing, um, and I kind of was managing that, uh, and then. Finally, one of the cooks left, and they let me have her room, which was reasonable. Um, There was only one glitch. There was one bathroom for everybody, and the room was right, with a very thin paper wall, the room was right next to the bathroom. So I heard everything. I'm not kidding. I mean, it was just like, I knew everybody's, Everything, you know. Really, it was amazing. And I started to be able to recognize it. You know, because, you know and I was trying not to do the word Betty, <laughs> but the reality was, you know, hearing, you know. But I can't tell you, I'm an aversion type. This was like, I wanted to murder people. I was so aversive. It was so hard, you know, and it was like, ah, oh, but I really had no choice it was raining and, you know, I just didn't have anywhere to go. So what I'm trying to say is that I wasn't able to maintain um, just hearing. But I I did for a few moments. And that experience, (laughs) it was just when this toilet was flushing. And instead of toilet or me, or, you know, whatever. It was just like, it really was just texture. It was just texture, you know, disappearing slowly. And it had, it's like totally liberating. And I couldn't maintain it after that. Like, it was like a peak experience. I had a glimpse. <laughs> and, you know, like, that was enough for that retreat for me. Um, it was hard. But it, I had this glimpse of, like, what was being said. Now, I wouldn't choose to do that again, right? I wouldn't. You don't go looking for that much trouble. But I have to say that often, for me, um, it's, it's been something, I've been struggling with something difficult And there's that feeling of it. It might be falling in or totally connecting. It doesn't matter. It could be that you're feeling very settled back. Everybody's a little different in terms of how that might kinesthetically be experienced. Could be there's some relaxation that happens behind the eyes. Really, it it's. Unique for, it's unique for each of us but it's that sense that somehow you know we've gone deeper than the pleasure pain syndrome and it's possible see this is what's hard for us to realize is that it's possible and we never know and we already know that <laughs> I can say it but we already know you never know So the reminder, it's like you just keep punching in in the morning and punch out at night, and you punch in in the morning and come and punch out at night. And if you have a sitting where you're sleepy the whole time and you learn to not take that personally, that's huge. That's liberated. It doesn't matter what it is that's happening. It matters how you're relating to it over and over and over and over. What you get liberated with does not matter. Restlessness, sleepiness, a sound, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So I'd like to end with, remember we started a little late, so um, the end of Toward the end of that book, the Golden Key, so now Tangle has been really journeying hard, and you know she already jumped <laughs> a long journey and she's gotten to, you know there are a few guides along the way, and she's gotten to the um oldest man of all, and it's a little young little boy, and he's the old man of the fire, and so she's traveling along, and she just says, <laughs> you know." been hard where is the old man of the fire she said here I am answered the child what can I do for you there was such an awfulness of absolute repose on the face of the child that Tangle stood dumb before him he had no smile but the love in his large gray eyes was deep as the center and with the repose, there lay on his face a shimmer as of moonlight, which seemed as if any moment it might break into such a ravishing smile as would cause the beholder to weep themselves to death. But the smile never came, and the moonlight lay there unbroken. For the heart of the child was too deep for any smile to reach from it to his face. Very important, for the heart of the child was too deep for any smile to reach from it to his face. Are you the oldest man of all, Tangle at length, although filled with awe, ventured to ask? Yes, I am. I am very, very old. I am able to help you. I know. I can help everybody. And that's our potential. That's that liberated heart. It has that fragrance that can help everybody. It's worth every single struggle or doubt. It's worth everything. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit